he was counseling. He was counseling patience and slowness. We were counseling impatience and speed. And somehow or another, we got together and went somewhere mm -hmm. down the middle of course. And, uh, but Woolworth became one of the leaders in the uh, chains that started opening their lunch counters. Mm -hmm. And uh, they opened them in St. Louis and Baltimore and uh, New Orleans. Nashville and some other places. Some people just took them out, right? Also. Yeah, some people took them out, but uh, Woolworth didn't do that. They they changed over, mm -hmm. and uh, the uh, Beskies finally came along too. And we, after some meetings we had in Detroit, what the top think? management, they made some changes too. What do you think it was like for people to begin to? go places that they couldn't go before. Well, you know, what I think that, I really can't speak from that from personal experience, but uh, I think people accepted it uh, and sort of moved into this area and uh, saying this is nice and this, what a nice advancement it is and so on and so forth and went about their daily lives and uh, last week they couldn't process. last week they couldn't eat at the lunch counter and this week they could and uh, but it you know it didn't make a dramatic change in their lifestyle it didn't change their jobs it didn't change the amount of income they had it just added another convenience to their situation and it was slow for even though people knew that a particular facility was open there was not overwhelming a rush. To I do wouldn't it. think so. I would think we it would to, be a very we used to pass frightening out thing for some people. We would pass out leaflets advising that these facilities were open. We had cards printed with mm -hmm. the names of all the restaurants that would serve blacks, Negroes, and the community. We'd pass those out, and so that the people have some assurances when they went to a place they know they could eat. Uh, a lot of people. You know, during this period when it was voluntary and opening, didn't want to be embarrassed. They didn't want to be faced with a situation where they would be denied service. Because, mm -hmm. you know, it takes a little guts and a little fortitude and a great deal of compassion and understanding to be able to go into a place where you know you're going to be rejected. And uh, I remember a case involving Marion and a friend of hers, and they were just talking about the other night. Marion told her this go get some, something to eat. This lady was pregnant, I guess, probably about seven or eight months. And they're up there standing in line. And this was at famous bar in Clayton, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. And uh, they were standing in line, and the manager came up to them and said, You can't eat here. And Marion said, Why can't I eat here? And, uh, I can buy a fur coat downstairs. And, uh, this lady was telling the thing, it was very dramatic. But essentially that's what happened. And uh, she would never have participated in that type of situation except Marion drug her into it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it, it took training and understanding and compassion on the part of the person who was going to do that because they had to feel a great deal worth themselves and not, be, not feel threatened by this type mm -hmm. of situation. I remember the time we went to Stan Mutual in Vegas that uh, I 
guess Marion and Gary Ryan and some other people involved in that they were trying to go over and sit in and stand and get one Vegas. And they went in and were standing in the line and uh, they saw Stan usual come in and Stan saw that he made a beeline away from there, got out of the place as fast as he could. And I think he talked to Biggie that day and uh, with no avail. But Stan recognized that they were involved in something that he shouldn't be involved in. And he avoided the situation. But I think the significance, first of all, we were trying to open public accommodations for all people. But the significance of the core group was that these were dedicated, courageous young people who were willing consistently, week after week after week after week, to try to open these doors. They were boring the hole through the wood. And sort of like dropping water. They were also imaginative and creative. Because if we were sitting at, let's say, Sticksbury and Fuller for 18 months, every Saturday and almost every Monday night, all day from 9 until 5, I guess, every Saturday, which means we were giving up a whole day. And we would sit there and some of the customers would want our seats. They would come and stand behind us. They would stand behind us, thinking that they were going to be there. And then they would see what was happening. So sometimes we would put signs on our back to say, we have been sitting here. This shows the creativeness. We have been sitting here for 10 months. I mean, yeah, 10 months, two weeks, and four days. Then the next week we would change the sign. In other words, mm -hmm. waiting for service or something like that. In other words, we would. Then there were other things that we. Billy used to have a little box in her back with leaflets. Billy Ames, or Billy Tino now. And, uh, and people could take a leaflet out of the box on your back. <laughs> so there were all sorts of nonviolent. And what we were trying to do was to persuade the other person, whether it was a restaurant owner, theater owner or the general public, nonviolently trying to persuade them of the rightness of our right, thoughts. The right thing to do. And we were always very careful to dress properly and to act properly. In other words, we did not wear, as I recall, blue jeans or anything. I mean, we were... You were dressed. We were dressed, dressed we were appropriately. And very presentable. Mm -hmm. we, uh, we were... No weird outfits or anything like that. We, you were a support group for each other, too. And uh, it ended up to be a very successful operation. Obviously. And anyway. Were you, were you involved, you were very much involved in this Draper versus uh, St. Louis in the swimming pools? Uh, well, I was somewhat involved, so let's put it that way. I've got your name in the paper. Yes, I know. <laughs> uh, that's the fairgrounds incident you're talking yeah. about. Uh, actually, Frankie Freeman was the local attorney, and uh, Constance Motley came in from uh, New York to actually try the case. And uh, 
I've been involved in serving subpoenas and uh, lining up witnesses and acting as a gopher for the group mm -hmm. and uh, doing the detail work. I prepared the pleadings and you know mm -hmm. reviewed the pleadings and made some changes and amendments in them. And uh, I participated in the trial. I didn't actually try the case. I was sitting at the council table. Constance Motley tried the case, and Frank Freeman was local counsel. But anyway, they ended up uh, it was in front of Judge Ruby Hewlin, as I remember. Mm -hmm. And uh, what happened in that case is that Judge Hewlin was a very conservative, very beady-eyed, mean SOB, and nobody ever crossed him in his courtroom. And so on the day of the trial, the judge asked the Police chief, are you saying that you can't maintain order out there? Because the action was to open up the swimming facilities at Fairgrounds Park, mm -hmm. and there's been a riot there, some, you know, near riot there, or a riot really. Mm -hmm. And the judge asked the police chief if he could maintain order, and the judge started, and the police charged to equivocate, and the judge said, "No, no," said, "I want to know whether or not the police force is able to change." order in the city of St. Louis, and if they can do it, why can't they? And the judge said, yes, we can. I mean, the police chief said, yes, we can maintain order. Mm -hmm. The judge says, that's all I need to know. He said, I'll uh, issue the injunction. I'll put it in effect two days hence, get you prepared for it. And it was opened up? And it was mm -hmm. opened up just like that, and that was the end of it. So that BDI'd yeah. SOB did all Yeah, the BDI'd <laughs> SOB did a great job. Uh, there's, I'm looking for an article now about uh, this is aftermath of the fairgrounds incident. It's uh, by James Lawrence, a Post-Dispatch editorial writer, uh, 1-19-1950. He says in this article that St. Louis is psychologically unprepared to undertake the adjustments with changing population, economic, and social conditions are forcing upon the community, and that uh, St. Louis has to be prepared for this kind of thing psychologically. For me, I'd like to hear your, uh, you know, opinions on. I think that you know, people accept what is and what what the law states for the most part. You have individuals who don't, but for the most part, and particularly during that time, most of the people are very law-abiding and. They may feel unhappy or disgruntled, but if the judge says that's what they have to do, that's what they will have to do. And after they do it a few times, it didn't bother them anymore. Or it wasn't a serious problem, at least mm -hmm. to that extent. So that I think the general public was much more willing to accept equal treatment than many of the people thought. There was always a vocal minority than the Zeldelke Smith, the Klan, and that group. And the forerunners of the John Birch Society who were always up there speaking against it. But they represented only a, real small, a relatively small pop, part of the population. And uh, they didn't have the persistence or the intuitiveness or the inventiveness to really run effective campaigns, whereas we thought, I thought we were doing a good job from our side. Charles, um why do you suppose, even though there were riots, uh, a little bit of a riot in, at fairgrounds, why do you suppose St. Louis really missed that kind of violence? 
to a great degree. I think it's part of the makeup of the community. Uh, the, we've never been, St. Louis has always sought accommodations, you know, instead of confrontations. And uh, on the few occasions when we've had confrontations, they sort of build up and then uh, certain compromises are made. And the Jefferson Bank situation is, is, is a real situation where that was done. Mm -hmm. Because we ran into a bunch of Southern crackers that owned the Jefferson Bank and uh, who were very anti-black and very prejudice and so on and so forth. And they got their hackles up. But after the Jefferson Bank started, the demonstration started, Civic Progress and the downtown banks, et cetera, said, hell, we can't have this in our community. We can't have all these people being arrested and going to jail and things like that. What we're going to have to do is make some accommodations. And of course there were, I guess, a torchlight parade when there were 20,000 people parading through downtown St. Louis protesting the rest of the 19. And the fact that they were singing around the jail every night. And, uh, but before it could really develop into an all-out confrontation, the powers of beast said, we got to make accommodations. And they did make accommodations. They started hiring blacks in the banks. And uh, while we never did get any blacks employed at Jefferson Bank, all other banks in town started employing blacks. Never did. And they still don't. Well, that's why we go back there and pick at them every five years. <laughs> and here's for you. <laughs> Don't you forget it. We uh, did our 20th and our 25th and our 30th is coming up soon, so I don't know. Oh, Let's yeah. see, when was that? Jefferson Bank, 1963. Uh, we've had our 25th. Uh, must have been 62 because we had our 25th, and now we're working on it, you, I guess. What was the, where did you find your most resistance? Mm. Oh, um, University City was a tough nut. Uh, you know, University City had passed laws up until uh, where blacks had to have passes to be on the street after six o'clock. What, what years are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the arrest at uh, Santoro's. Uh, we're talking in the 50s, late 50s. And they seem to be more liberal now than... Well, you know, University City was a Jewish community and a Catholic community, about 50-50. Uh -huh. I didn't know there were any Catholics there. I thought it was yeah. all Jewish. No, it was Susan. Was a Jewish and Catholic community. Oh. And no, I'm kidding, but I know that it was predominantly, it, it seemed. And uh, anyway, this was, there was a NAACP group at Washington University. Mm -hmm. And they were a, you know, local campus chapter. And they were working with the St. Louis Corps group. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were disgruntled about Santoros, which was the restaurant right at the end of the campus there, which couldn't serve the black students. And so one night we planned a joint demonstration. And uh, 
they went out there and they were all arrested. I remember that Ed Welch's wife was, her name was Sue Friedman at the time, was arrested. And Bob Curtis was arrested along with a large number of other people. And uh, they, we had the trial out in the courthouse in Clayton. And, uh, but the courthouse that night was really crowded. Every black in town that could make it was out there in that courthouse. The thing was just packed. And I can remember Wayman Smith Sr., who was the alderman from the 18th Ward at that time. It, no, he was alderman from uh, Jordan Chambers Ward. Not Jordan, but Pop Weathers. And uh, that was the 18th. Jordan had the 19th board. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but he was out there raising his voice, and he had a substantial voice. And, uh, Weathers? No, uh, Wayman Smith. Wayman Smith. Sorry. Senior. Yeah, okay. And uh, anyway, uh, that was the Santoro's incident. And that went on for some time. And then ultimately, we got a breakthrough. Uh, Lou Gilden happened, was at that time on the council out there, and uh, he was instrumental in getting some changes made, and uh, we finally worked out a program where we did a testing situation in University City. We tested every restaurant, and uh, we worked out a program of opening all the restaurants with the help of the City Fathers, and so University City ultimately went along fine. Because there, there's so many black people living in in, in university. Well, there weren't at that time. Yes, but I'm saying, is it now as opposed to Clayton or yeah. any place else? Well, University City was, you know, right in the line of the movement. Of the movement, mm -hmm. right. Oh, yeah. And when Mill Creek was closed, and etc. Yeah. Um, okay. What was the best thing in those years? Well, there were a number of very best things. You know, I don't know whether you can pick out. Any particular thing. What was your lowest point? Well, I like. I think, like any other group, if you go for a long period of time without making any success, you tend to be frustrated. But I don't think we ever really became disheartened. Mm -hmm. uh, but we did. We would try one tactic, try one tactic, then move to another tactic, and. Uh, you know, we were involved in the theaters, we were involved in restaurants, we were involved in employment. Uh, I remember there was a ice cream parlor on Page Avenue, uh, not too far from where Marion uh, lived. And this fellow had three or four little ice cream stores. And uh, he was a very violent person. And, uh, we were out there picketing one time, and I remember Marion was had some signs in her, some leaflets in her hand, and he came rushing out of the door and tried to grab them from her. And about that time, a couple of people had gone to high school with her and saw this incident where she was holding on to the leaflets and he was taking them one at a time, tearing them up, you know. And uh, they jumped out of the car and started running towards him. And I was about half a block away, and I saw all this going on. I said, "Uh-oh, nonviolence is going to get a real break." 
mm-hmm. problem here. And I ran down there and I got in between the store owner, who at that time had become somewhat frightened of the situation. These two great big guys were there. And uh, I wasn't very big. I weighed maybe 135 pounds in those days. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I was standing there with my hands on those two guys' chests, and they didn't know me from Adam. Mm-hmm. And Marion said, don't hit him, don't hit him. <laughs> 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 He's with me. <laughs> he belongs to me. Uh, oh. Did you all do anything with the restrictive covenants? Uh, no. Uh, Marion was involved in the restrictive covenants in a sort of limited sense because uh, when that case was being prepared, she Shelley versus Kramer. Shelley versus Kramer, she did the typing. Uh, she was down, she volunteered to do typing on that. Mm-hmm. That was before I met her, of course. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, I didn't have anything to do with the restricted covenants case. As a lawyer, um, I mean, you, you helped in, in, in everything. I mean, I think, uh, I, were you the only white lawyer? In St. Louis that really participated on a ongoing basis, yeah. I was one of my lawyers who was did that. Uh, I, I tried a number of cases uh, of sit-ins where people were arrested and charged with trespass, and uh, I tried one in Columbia, Missouri, where the corporate in Columbia had engaged in sit-ins. We won that case, and mm-hmm. I tried one in um, Jefferson City. Uh, I tried several in the St. Louis area where people were arrested and charged with trespass. And uh, we were able to win all these because the people were originally invited into the restaurants. Uh, oh. They didn't commit any damage or any property damage while they were there. And uh, so that was judges uniformly ruled that there was no criminal trespass. Um, they really didn't have much of another charge to make. Um, so we were successfully successful in defending the charges brought against individuals on criminal trespass. Now, I spent three weeks in Jackson, Mississippi during the freedom rides down there uh, trying the cases. And uh, to give you an example, the first case that was tried, uh, there were three lawyers down there, including two black lawyers and myself. And uh, the case was tried, and uh, after the case was tried, the judge pulled out his written opinion from his desk and entered his decision. Uh, he had about a five-page written decision, which finding everybody guilty and sentenced them to six months in parchment, which is a state penitentiary. Mm-hmm. So, and that was a pattern of all the trials in Mississippi. They either got 90 days or mm-hmm. or six months. The court couldn't have happened without you then. Pardon? The court could not have happened here without you. These things could not have happened. Well, uh, it might have been a little different, but there were number of people who are making very substantial contributions. Right, but if, if you, you were a necessary oh, I don't know whether part as, as a white person. Well, there were a number of white people involved. You went to met as a lawyer to 
step in and well, whether it was I, I had certain talents or certain training skills, which right. uh, added impetus to the group. But exactly. There were other successful core groups who didn't have a lawyer that participated. Uh -huh. It just happened that uh, I was there and was available, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I'm sure that I added something to the group, but I wasn't actually essential ingredient. How would you how would you uh, sum up the 40s and 50s? Oh, it was a time of very, very slow change, but that continuous change and that building up of momentum. And uh, so that by the end of the 50s, I, I think that the country and the people can, you know, influence the communications of the industry were getting prepared for the change that had to happen. Mm -hmm. They were aware that it was coming, they were aware that it would come soon, and they could see it within the next five or six years. So that it took all that time to sort of prepare them for the situation. Right. I just want to run just a couple of things and then I'll let you go. Um, The schools in '54. Did you do? Did, well, did you have it's any? very interesting. Uh, 1952, I prepared a pamphlet for Teamsters Local 688, and uh, we did a three portions of the pamphlet, and uh, I contributed the legal portion, which talked about the inevitability of the. Supreme Court ruling in favor of opening the schools. Yeah. And that document was published by 688 and distributed to its membership and etc. And I think it was distributed, was prepared the latter part of 52, distributed by them in 53, and then the Supreme Court came down in 54 with the decision. So that I wasn't directly involved in it, I was just. Ahead of your time. Well, I had foresight, I guess. Well, you were so involved in it. So, would you say by the 60s, I mean the beginning of the 60s, was everything here integrated? In? No, no, no. I mean like the lunch counters and the... Well, most of the lunch counters, the, uh, I've forgotten the date the public accommodation bill was passed in the city. Mm -hmm. but. It wasn't until that public accommodation bill was passed that, in fact, that everything became open. And even after that, it took a little time. I was going to say it didn't. Was it 65? Well, it's, it seems to me it was either 64 or 65 that the bill was finally passed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but even after that, it took a little time. This was during the student SNCC group. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think this was probably 64, 65 that we're talking about. So that the use of the nonviolent technique and sit-in demonstrations were adopted by SNCC and some of the other groups. And, uh, I don't want you to think that CORE had the original idea because there were sit-ins way back in the 1800s. I know, I know. Black businesses. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we really did much in that area. Mm -hmm. 
uh, defense contractors no. for the war? Uh, the war was over and the defense contracts were way down. Mm -hmm. uh, I do know that uh, Ted McNeil and uh, David Grant and some of the other people mm -hmm. had, did, had done a great deal on defense contracting during the war. Well, Scruggs, I, I have, I have a, a note here that says Scruggs was the first integrated restaurant. I don't know if that's true. I think that may well be true. And here, uh, here's a list of the, like, the organizations, the Colored Clerks Circle, the Post, Postal Clerks Alliance, the NACP, the Urban Human Relations Council, for the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Quarters. Quarters. And uh, how about places like the Elks? Um, those kind You're of. talking about the Black Elks or the White Elks? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the Black Elks. <laughs> I didn't realize that they were. You're teaching me something now. Yeah. I know Mildred Grant mentioned something about David Grant and the Elks. My knowledge about the, mm -hmm. the uh, social organizations and acceptors mm -hmm. is extremely limited. I just don't have any additional information to give you. Is, are you aware of anything that had to do with teachers in Mobile, Missouri? Uh, I know a lot of black teachers who were probably let out of jobs. That happened in Mobile and also happened in some community. Southern part of the state. There were two places where that happened, and uh, the Moberly case was tried, and as I remember, one, mm -hmm. and uh, the number of teachers got reinstated, mm -hmm. and I think it had the same effect in the other city. I, but that came after Brown versus Board of Education. That's probably around 56, 57. Thank you for everything, both of you. I appreciate your time. And nice to meet you, sister. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Hurry.